Due to the graphic nature of this cold case, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of violence, sexual assault, substance abuse, murder, and suicide. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. It's 1986. A man stands in the middle of a forest in League City, Texas, underneath a dark and moonless sky. His left hand is wrapped around a beer can. His right cradles a gun. He's hunting. He makes his way through groves of spindly mesquite trees until he reaches a small clearing, a place full of ghosts. The place where his daughter's skeleton was found. The man sits on the grass and lights a cigarette. He's going to wait here as long as it takes until the monster who killed his daughter returns. I'm Carter Roy, and this is Cold Cases, a Spotify original from ParCast. Every Monday, I tell you the story of a crime that went unsolved for years. We'll explore a vast array of offenses, from burglary to arson to murder. Some weeks, forensic breakthroughs will solve long-dormant cases. Others will still be left searching for the truth. Today, we're going to a plot of land in League City, Texas, It was once home to nothing more than mesquite trees and an old oil rig, but a series of violent crimes turned it into a haunted landmark. Now, it's known as the Texas Killing Fields. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, The gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. Hi, I'm Blair. Want to hear something scary? Join me as I read the creepiest urban legends, folk tales, and ghost stories that I learn on my travels around the world and that we receive from listeners like you. But only if you think you can handle it. Listen on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, sweet screams. About halfway between Houston and Galveston is the small town of League City, Texas. In the early 1980s, it's still relatively undeveloped. 
There are thousands of acres of grasslands, interspersed by a few tight-knit neighborhoods. It's here you'll find a plot of land that seems innocuous. Patchy grass overrun by weeds, cement culverts cracked and worn away by time, litter thrown absentmindedly by teenagers and construction workers. If you drove past, you'd barely give it a second look. But this particular field haunts the residents of League City, because the things that were uncovered there are enough to make anyone's skin crawl. And for one man, the land is emblematic of a kind of pain that few people will ever understand. Our story begins in September of 1984, just a few miles away from that grassy plain. Tim and Jan Miller have just moved to League City from Dickinson, another small town about 10 minutes away, with their 16-year-old daughter, Laura. Laura's like a lot of girls in the 80s. She's got a Farrah Fawcett haircut, loves pop music, and is more concerned with her boyfriend than her high school classes. But she's also been struggling a lot lately. Laura has a seizure disorder that's difficult to manage, and it makes her feel like an outcast. Her grades have been suffering, which is why Tim and Jan have decided to move her to a different school district. They're hoping this will be the change Laura needs. A new high school, new friends, new horizons. Still, it doesn't take long for Laura to get homesick. On the morning of September 10th, 1984, all she wants to do is talk to her boyfriend Vernon to hear a familiar and comforting voice. But she can't just call him. The Millers are still in the process of unpacking and they don't have their phone line set up yet. This is before the days of cell phones and widespread internet. The only way for Laura to talk to Vernon is by using a payphone. And the nearest one is outside a small convenience store at the corner of one of the town's busier roads. It's about a mile away. So Laura asks her mom to drop her off there on her way to work. Jan's hesitant, so she promises she'll walk right home after she's done. Jan eventually gives in and drives her to the store. Laura heads to the payphone and dials Vernon's number. Jan waits in the parking lot for a few minutes, thinking she still might have time to drive Laura back home, but Laura waves for her to go. So Jan drives away. When Tim and Jan Miller both get home from work later that afternoon, they expect to see Laura setting up her new bedroom. But she's not there. They assume that Laura met up with her boyfriend Vernon and spent the day with him. But soon after this conversation, Vernon shows up at their front door looking for her. He says he hasn't heard from Laura since she called him from the payphone that morning, which means nobody's seen or spoken to Laura for hours. Tim and Jan go out searching, but Laura's nowhere to be found. Her parents try to rationalize. Maybe Laura's off with friends. She couldn't call because their phone lines aren't set up yet. She'll be home soon. Everything will be fine. But the next morning, there's still no sign of their daughter. Dread starts sinking in. Tim calls local hospitals, wondering if Laura might have had a seizure, but she hasn't been checked in anywhere. Unsure what else to do, he calls the police. They tell him, don't worry, Laura's a teenager, she probably just ran away. Tim insists Laura would never do something like that. 
Even if she did leave on purpose, she would have taken her seizure medication with her, but it's still sitting on the bathroom counter at home. The officers aren't convinced. They assure Tim his daughter will come back before long. From the perspective of the police, this is a pretty reasonable conclusion. According to recent data from the National Center for Missing and Endangered Children, the vast majority of missing kids, around 90%, turn out to be runaways. That's the trend, but it's not always the truth. Tim can't shake the feeling that something terrible has happened to his daughter. He starts looking into recent crimes in League City and comes across a story that chills him to the core. Five months earlier, in April 1984, a family was spending a spring afternoon outside when their dog ran up to them. He was carrying something big, round, and off-white in its mouth. A human skull. The family called the police. Officers fanned out in search of the rest of the skeleton, and they found it, a few hundred yards away, in a small oil field off Calder Road. The bones belonged to a woman. Her ribs were broken. There were clothes nearby, but not on the body, which made police think the woman might have been raped. All this led the medical examiner to rule the death a homicide. Using dental records, police confirmed it was the body of a woman who'd gone missing six months prior, Hedy Fye. Before her disappearance, Hedy was a 25-year-old cocktail waitress who lived in League City with her parents and her six-year-old daughter. Their home was less than a quarter mile from where the Millers would eventually move. In October of 1983, Hedy told her dad she was going to hitchhike to Houston to see her boyfriend. She left, and a little while later, an employee at the local convenience store watched Hedy make a call on the payphone outside the same payphone Laura would eventually use. And that's the last time anyone saw Hedy. All this happened less than one year before Laura Miller went missing. When Tim hears this story, it's like the floor falls out from beneath him. What if the same thing that happened to Hedy Fye happened to his daughter? He rushes back to the police and tells them he thinks Laura's disappearance might be related to Hedy's murder, but officers aren't interested in his theories. They assure him Laura ran away. She'll come home eventually. Stay calm, be patient, wait. But Tim can't be calm and patient. His daughter is missing. He finds the authorities' lack of urgency infuriating. Laura's been gone for days and he's beyond desperate. He begs the police to at least check the field where Hedy's body was found and see if Laura might be out there. But they refuse. They say the area is fenced in private property, so they can't just search through it. By this point, Tim is ready to take matters into his own hands. He wants to go out and search the area for himself. The problem is he doesn't know the exact location of the field where Hedy's body was found, and the police won't tell him. That information is crucial to Hedy's still unsolved murder, so they can't give out the details. If you've never been to South Texas, you might wonder how locating this field could present such a problem, especially since the discovery of Hedy's body was widely reported in the news. 
But that small oil field is just one section amongst thousands of acres of land. It's worse than looking for a needle in a haystack. Tim doesn't even know where to start. He feels stuck. Over the following months, he keeps looking for Laura, contacting friends and family, doing whatever he can to track her down. But it's no use. As time continues to pass with no new information, he loses hope. He can't deny his gut instinct that Laura's lying in that oil field just out of his reach. September 10th, 1985 marks one year since Laura disappeared. When the day comes and goes with no leads, Tim resigns himself to the idea that his daughter isn't coming home alive. He can't eat, can't sleep, his marriage starts to fracture, his life is falling apart. It goes on like this for a year and a half. By 1986, Tim feels like a danger to himself. So in February of that year, he checks himself into a hospital. He's hoping to escape the stress of worrying about Laura and to start to recover physically and emotionally. But the troubles in League City are just getting started. On February 2nd, 1986, two boys ride dirt bikes around Calder Road. They race along the gravel trail until a putrid smell stops them in their tracks. They're curious, so they follow the scent. It leads them into an oil field. The grass is all dried up, and the leaves on the mesquite trees are just starting to grow back. That's when they notice it. Beside the trunk of a tree, a woman's partially decomposed body lying face up in the dirt. Officers show up on the scene. They cordon off the area, prepare to transfer the body to a medical examiner for analysis and do a sweep for additional clues. Then they make a startling discovery. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. In the oil field off Calder Road, Leak City Police find not just one body, but two. Two days later, on February 4th, 1986, newspapers report on the gruesome discovery. Both bodies were within 200 yards of where Hedy Phi was found two years earlier. One set of remains was partially decomposed, the other was skeletal. When this information reaches Tim and Jan Miller, their hearts sink. Tim has been begging the police to go out and check that field ever since his daughter disappeared 17 months ago. He can't help but wonder if Laura has finally been found. Since Tim is stuck in the hospital, Jan goes to the League City Police Station. She gives officers a copy of Laura's dental records and waits as police compare the documents with each skull found in the oil field. 
When they get the results, the news is somewhat expected, but still devastating. The skeleton belongs to Laura. As Tim and Jan grieve, the Leak City Police realize they have an extremely difficult situation on their hands. Laura's body has been reduced to bones. It's been sitting out in the elements for almost a year and a half. From a forensic perspective, this is just about the worst possible scenario. Any markings, injuries, or trace evidence that might have been on her skin are long gone. This makes it impossible to figure out her cause of death. All police can say is that it's a homicide. Because, in the words of one detective, you don't just go into a field and die. Officers have more luck with the other body, the one that's more recent and only partially decomposed. While completing an autopsy, the medical examiner finds a bullet lodged in the woman's spine. She likely died after being shot from behind. They also determine the woman was white, with brown hair, and a distinctive gap between her front teeth. She was average height, likely with a slim build. It's worth noting, Heidi and Laura were also both average height, slim white women with light brown or blonde hair. It seems like an emerging pattern. But police run into a major roadblock. While they've determined the third woman's cause of death, they don't have any clues to her identity. In their records, she's simply Jane Doe. Three women who all looked fairly similar, two who lived in the same neighborhood and went missing from the exact same location, all found within a few hundred yards of one another in less than three years. It seems too specific to be a coincidence. In all likelihood, police are dealing with a serial killer, and that means the clock is ticking on this investigation. If authorities don't catch the murderer, they're likely to strike again. Hoping to find more information, officers keep returning to the field off Calder Road. They gather up anything they can find. Scraps of paper, old, weather-beaten shoes, spare keys, strands of hair. The area is rural, but it's also full of this kind of miscellaneous debris. Call it the general detritus of South Texas. And that makes it tough for the police to determine what's significant and what isn't. Could a piece of clothing belong to the killer? Or was it left by an oil rig employee? Is a business card trash or a priceless clue? What's evidence and what's merely coincidence? Before long, the police are at a dead end. As fall fades into winter, the case goes cold. The grass in the oil field off Calder Road dies. The mesquite trees lose their leaves. A chill runs through the air. In December 1986, Tim Miller carries a homemade wooden cross to the spot where his daughter's body was found and hammers it into the earth. It's a makeshift memorial, but he surrounds it with items Laura loved, a statue of a cat, a seashell, a plaque with her name on it. It's supposed to be a way to lay Laura to rest, 
but Tim can't get real closure. He's heading down another spiral of self-destruction. He and Jan are now divorced. The pain and regret drove an insurmountable wedge between them. Tim struggles to cope. He loses his job, and he keeps going back to the oil field. Over the next few years, Tim repeatedly drives out to Calder Road in the middle of the night, holding a six-pack and a shotgun. He sits by Laura's cross, listening to the wind rustle in the grass, listening for footsteps, hoping the man who murdered his daughter will return. It's difficult to imagine a more haunting image, a man alone in this place that's come to symbolize violence and death, just waiting to come face to face with his daughter's killer. It never happens, but on one trip to the oil field in the late 1980s, Tim does find something, a stack of old roofing tiles. With the field so littered with debris, a few pieces of roofing material might seem insignificant. They certainly don't mean anything to the police, but they validate Tim's suspicions because by this point, he thinks he knows who killed his daughter. There's a man who used to live in the same neighborhood as the Millers in Dickinson, Texas. His name is Clyde Hedrick, and he works for a roofing contractor, which might just be a coincidence, but Tim doesn't think so. Because Clyde's also the main suspect in another local woman's death. Her name was Ellen Ray Beeson, and she was last seen in a bar called the Texas Moon Club with Clyde in July 1984, two months before Laura Miller went missing. A year later, Ellen's body was found hidden near a causeway in Galveston. Her cause of death was ruled undetermined. The police immediately zeroed in on Clyde, who claimed Ellen had drowned in a pond, and he only hid her body out of fear he'd be suspected of murder. Authorities couldn't prove his story false, so they couldn't get a homicide conviction. In 1986, he was convicted of the lesser charge of abusing a corpse and sentenced to a year behind bars. But by 1987, Clyde is a free man again, living in Dickinson, 10 minutes from League City. And the more Tim looks into it, the more suspicious Clyde looks. He learns Heedy Phi frequented the Texas Moon Club, the same bar where Ellen Beeson met Clyde. It seems possible Heedy met Clyde there too. And according to some of Laura's friends, she knew Clyde Hedrick. She'd once gone inside his house with them when they were buying weed. This shakes Tim to his core. Clyde knew Laura. He'd almost certainly cross paths with Heedy. Maybe he knew Jane Doe too. Maybe Clyde Hedrick is the common thread. Tim brings this information to the police, but once again, they shrug him off. They say the evidence is all circumstantial, which is fair, but from where Tim's standing, the circumstances sure are suspicious. It feels like the police are telling Tim to quit investigating, to just go home and wait while detectives do their jobs. But years keep ticking away with no breakthroughs. Tim's desperate to do something to help catch Laura's killer before they strike again. Unfortunately, he isn't fast enough. 
On September 8, 1991, a fourth body is found in the oil field. Investigators confirm the skeleton belongs to a young white woman somewhere in her mid-twenties to mid-thirties, five foot three, slim, long, light brown hair. Her cheekbone and jaw are broken, which suggests she was hit with a flat object. According to the medical examiner, the victim suffered blunt force trauma before, most likely being suffocated to death. Authorities run into familiar issues trying to identify her. They can't match her description to any local missing person cases, and they can't pull any fingerprints from the body. They are forced to give the woman a pseudonym, Janet Doe, to differentiate her from the last one. And by this point, the swath of land off Calder Road has gained a very bad reputation. People give it a nickname, too. The Texas Killing Fields. The League City Police know something has to change. Something has to be done to keep people safe and repair the city's image, and local law enforcement can't do it on their own. So, they contact the FBI. Agents from the Behavioral Science Unit put together a potential psychological profile. According to author Catherine Casey, they determined that, quote, the man using the killing field as his private dumping ground is a methodical, organized sexual serial killer, one with high intelligence who probably has a history of abusing animals. They also have a hunch the killer is a local, or at least someone who's intimately familiar with the area. And based on these ideas, police identify a person of interest. A scientist with an allegedly violent past who happens to live right next door to the killing fields. November 1993 marks nearly 10 years since Hedy Fye's body was found in the now infamous Texas killing fields. After a decade of terror and heartbreak, Lake City police think they've finally found their man. They arrive at a plot of land directly adjacent to the killing fields, a wide-open pasture with one small house. They approach the front door with a search warrant in tow. Officers spend 12 hours sweeping the home from top to bottom. They come away with a number of guns, a gold tooth, and a collection of newspaper clippings about the killing field murders. The man who lives here? His name is Robert Abel. He's a retired NASA engineer, a rocket scientist. He's brilliant, but he's also got a checkered past. He's been married and divorced three times. One of his ex-wives says he once threatened her after she refused to have sex with him. Another says he beats his horses with a pipe to tame them, and when they die, he doesn't bury them. Instead, he leaves them outside to decay and be eaten by scavengers. This is unusual, even for a rancher in rural Texas. And as many are quick to point out, it seems eerily similar to how the killing fields victims are treated. Nevertheless, the police believe Robert matches the FBI's description of their killer. And at least one of the guns in the house 
matches the caliber of the bullet found in Jane Doe's spine. But the striations on the projectile have all been worn away. There's no way to match it to the gun. As for the gold tooth, it's one of Robert's. Maybe the result of some dental surgery or something he kept for its value. And the newspaper clippings? They're strange, but they're not necessarily incriminating. It's possible Robert was just interested in the crimes that took place so close to him. Robert might look suspicious, but there's no real evidence against him. Authorities are back to square one. But word that Robert was a person of interest, even just momentarily, spreads. And it soon reaches Tim Miller. When Tim learns about the authorities' raid on Robert's property, it's like the whole case clicks together. He forgets all about his suspicions against Clyde Hedrick. Tim is 100% certain Robert Abel is guilty. Beginning in late 1993, Tim makes it his mission to torment Robert and force him to issue a confession. He leaves countless voicemails on Robert's answering machine. He spends hours parked outside of Robert's house. Anytime they run into each other in town, Tim makes a show of confronting Robert publicly. This goes on for years. Tim even manages to convince a bunch of his neighbors that Robert is a serial killer. For context, these crimes have hit everyone in Leak City hard. Nobody feels safe anymore. When people hear rumors that Robert is a murderer, they believe it, if only so they can feel like these crimes have been solved. League City turns against Robert Abel. His reputation is destroyed. It's not the kind of thing Robert can just bounce back from. He feels like his life is bordering on ruin. By the late 1990s, he's depressed and withdrawn. But Tim Miller is more determined than ever. He convinces the owner of the oil field to lease the land to him for just $10 a year. It's basically a free pass for Tim to go out and investigate more thoroughly than he ever has before. He recruits volunteer helpers. He also gets a tractor, shovels, and search dogs. He digs up huge swaths of the property, dead set on finding definitive evidence against Robert Abel. But he doesn't find it. According to author Catherine Casey, after years of harassing Robert Abel, Tim's frustration boils over. He confronts Robert outside his house, throws him to the ground, and points a gun at his head. Tim is moments away from pulling the trigger when he realizes it won't do any good. If Robert Abel is guilty, which Tim fully believes he is, he needs to be alive to face consequences for his actions. So... Tim walks away. Later on, Tim describes this as the moment he realized how unhinged he'd become. He said, quote, I felt like I'd lost my mind. Tim checks himself into the hospital again. He recovers as much as he can and eventually decides he was wrong about Robert. He owes him an apology. According to Tim, he and Robert make up. They even hug. It seems like, against all odds, everything is going to be okay between them. But really, the worst is yet to come. 
Six years later, in 2005, Tim hears about the latest tragedy. Robert Abel drove his car onto some railroad tracks and parked. A train collided with his vehicle. Robert died. Officially, the whole thing was ruled an accident, but Tim Miller and others in League City disagree. In a 2012 CBS interview, Tim said that he feels some responsibility for Robert's death. As recently as 2022, he told journalist Ali Conti that he believes Robert Abel died by suicide. It adds on to the guilt Tim carries. With the benefit of hindsight, he finally admits there's no evidence that Robert Abel killed anyone. There never was. And the fact that Tim was so aggressive and spread so many rumors about him might have contributed to his death. While Tim grapples with this turn of events, the League City Police and the FBI continue struggling to make headway. If Robert Abel isn't guilty, who is? And how can authorities find the killer when they still don't know two of the victims' names? For all the authorities know, Jane and Janet Doe's next of kin might be the key to solving this case, and yet they can't track them down. Decades pass without answers. Some days, it feels like the truth will always be out of reach. The case is colder than ever. Then, more than three decades after Jane Doe's body was found, authorities get a massive break. In April 2019, Tennessee resident Shirley Cook is reading articles about unidentified women. It's something of a hobby ever since her niece disappeared 33 years ago. That day, Shirley reads something surprising. A report about a Jane Doe with a gap-toothed smile found in a small town near Houston. Authorities have been trying to determine her identity for over three decades. The timeline and physical description match up perfectly. With her heart racing, Shirley calls the phone number provided. It connects her to the League City Police Department. She gives them the rundown. Her niece, Audrey Lee Cook, disappeared from the Houston area in December 1985, when she was 30 years old. Audrey's family reported her missing and conducted searches over the years, but they never found any promising leads. Not until now. Shirley has her hopes up, but the response she gets from investigators still comes as a shock. They were just trying to get a hold of her because they think she's right. Thanks to a new process called genetic genealogy, the FBI and the League City Police have been able to zero in on Jane and Janet Doe's relatives. It works like this. Scientists compare an unidentified person's DNA to those registered in national or private databases, find close matches, and locate that person's family members. This allows them to confirm Shirley Cook's suspicions. Jane Doe is Audrey Lee. For her family, the news is bittersweet. It's heartbreaking to know her fate, but it's still better than not knowing. And Audrey's relatives aren't the only ones who finally get answers. Investigators also locate Janet Doe's family and discover who she really was. 
Her name was Donna Prudhomme. She was from Port Arthur, Texas, but at the time of her death in 1991, she was living in Nassau Bay, about 10 minutes from League City. She was 34 when she died. Donna had a hard life. She'd been in an abusive marriage and relied on her mother to help care for her two children. When she disappeared, her family wondered if she'd skip town to try to get a fresh start. It made sense that she might run from her abuser, but her family felt certain she wouldn't have abandoned her kids. For almost 30 years, they questioned whether Donna left on purpose or whether something bad happened to her. Her sister Diane said, quote, I can tell you that every time there was a body found, I was always waiting to see if it was her. It's just a big relief. It's a huge relief for her son to know that she just didn't abandon him. This is the information police were searching for for three decades. But now that they have it, where do they go next? As of this recording, the League City Police and the FBI are still searching for a common thread between all four victims. Kitty Fye, Laura Miller, Audrey Cook, and Donna Prudhomme. The investigation remains open and active. As for Tim Miller, he's been taking steps to get his life back on track. In fact, he's working to make sure other people never have to go through what he did. In 2000, not long after his final confrontation with Robert Abel, Tim founded a nonprofit organization called Texas EquiSearch. His goal was to provide search and rescue services to those whose loved ones have gone missing. It started with two horses and a few volunteers. Now it's grown into a massive worldwide operation, complete with full-time staff, boats, planes, and even drones. Today, Tim is the person people call when they need help. It's inspiring that Tim has channeled his grief into doing so much good, but it's also clear that he's still obsessed with solving Laura's case. Once he finally accepted Robert Abel was innocent, he turned his attention back to Clyde Hedrick, and to this day, he's convinced Clyde is guilty. He spent decades trying to get authorities to take a closer look at the case of Ellen Ray Beeson, the woman Clyde was suspected of killing. In 2012, another autopsy was performed on her remains. A forensic anthropologist determined her skull had been fractured prior to death. Clyde was charged with murder, but there still wasn't enough evidence to prove that Ellen's death wasn't an accident. Ultimately, the jury convicted him of involuntary manslaughter, and he was sentenced to 20 years in a maximum security prison. He only served seven before being released on parole in October of 2021. Importantly, during Clyde's 2014 trial and in later parole hearings, the Galveston County District Attorney stated Clyde was the leading suspect in the Killing Field murders. Later that same year, Tim filed a $110 million wrongful death lawsuit against Clyde, alleging that he caused Laura's death. In July 2022, a judge granted Tim's request for a default judgment, which essentially means that because Clyde never showed up in court, Tim won the suit by default. 
he was awarded over $24 million in damages. But this doesn't necessarily mean Clyde is guilty. On top of the fact that this was a default judgment, it was a civil case, which has a different standard of proof than a criminal trial. In criminal court, the prosecution has to prove that the defendant is guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. But in civil court, they only have to show that a preponderance of the evidence points to the defendant's guilt. Clyde lost the civil suit, and he's still never been criminally charged for Laura's murder. While Tim claims there's evidence regarding Clyde's guilt that hasn't been made public, that's impossible to verify as of this recording. To be clear, Clyde has always maintained his innocence in the Texas Killing Fields murders. He also insists Ellen Beeson's death was an accident. Only one thing seems certain. Tim will never stop searching for the truth. That's the frustrating thing about these cases. It's impossible to know when to move on. Sometimes the answers lie forever out of reach, and all we can ask for is closure for the victim's families. In other stories, all it takes is one forensic breakthrough, one witness coming forward, one new discovery to bring a dead and buried case back to life. That's the subject of our next episode. A brutal, violent crime becomes an inspiring tale of perseverance when one woman refuses to let her best friend's murder rest. Keep listening for the murder of Angela Samoda. If you have any information about Hedy Fye, Laura Miller, Audrey Lee Cook, or Donna Prudhomme, visit tips.fbi.gov or contact your local FBI field office. If you or someone you know is going through a crisis, you can contact the 988 Suicide and Crisis Lifeline. They're available 24 hours a day, seven days a week at 988. Or you can speak to them online at 988lifeline.org. Thanks again for tuning in. We'll be back every Monday with another cold case. For more information on the Texas killing fields, amongst the many sources we used, we found Deliver Us by Catherine Casey extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Cold Cases and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Cold Cases is a Spotify original from ParCast with executive producers Max Cutler and Drew Cole. Our head of programming is Julian Boireau. This show was developed by Mickey Taylor. Our supervising sound designer is Russell Nash with Nick Johnson as our head of production and Trent Williamson as our senior production specialist. Ryan O'Leary-Jones is our supervising editor and Derek Jennings is our writing lead. This episode of Cold Cases was written by Karis Allen, edited by Sarah Batchelor and Andrew Kelleher, fact-checked by Claire Cronin, researched by Mickey Taylor, sound designed by Russell Nash, and produced by Aaron Larson. I'm Carter Roy. 